Hi, my name is Matt Braleyberger. I'm a business development manager covering the serverless compute area and looking forward to talking today about selecting your first serverless pilot. So as we look at the agenda, uh, the four things I'll cover through the presentation today are really what is serverless and more importantly, why should I care? Uh, specific adoption patterns that we're seeing our customers using, criteria to help you select your first pilot, and then actually measuring success and beginning to scale out inside your organization. So let's start with what is serverless and why should I care? Well, if we step back a little bit further and we start looking at what businesses are ultimately looking to achieve, uh, to maintain a competitive advantage, digital businesses, we're saying, must innovate as rapidly as possible. And that means innovation has to be fostered in your organization. In order to do that, you need your teams focusing on building applications and not managing the underlying infrastructure behind them. And so we have this consistent flow between experiment, feedback and ideas, ultimately creating a flywheel where sometimes, and it may be only one out of 100, one of these innovations becomes successful for the organization. But again, we want organizations and people on our teams doing everything that they can to try and innovate, to find new ways to engage with customers and to grow the business. So what are the specific capabilities of a modern application? An application is driving the business, of course, that we're looking to build. Well, we're saying applications need to be secure, they need to be resilient, they need to be elastic, they need to be modular, they need to be automated and interoperable. Now, these aren't necessarily easy things to do, but leveraging a serverless infrastructure, things like Lambda, API Gateway, Step Functions, messaging, provide you the ability to build an application without having to focus on the infrastructure underlying it and able to actually achieve many of these capabilities of a modern application. All right, so if you look at the modern application checklist, we're saying that we need to enable security and compliance across the entire application lifecycle. Not as easily as said than done, of course, but leveraging a serverless architecture allows us to focus on the application being built and not the infrastructure underneath it. Uh, we're saying structuring apps as a collection of microservices. And for those of you who've been around for a while, microservices aren't really new. Things like service-oriented architecture provided that similar sets of capabilities. What's different today, though, is that we're able to leverage fully managed services and cloud-based resources to actually host and manage these applications. Things like Lambda, Step Functions, API Gateway, and messaging. We're also suggesting that we want to be building with serverless technologies as much as possible. Allowing my team to begin an application by focusing on the business logic and the code rather than the underlying infrastructure not only gives us additional time to market agility, but allows us to innovate more as a team. There are less hurdles and less obstacles for my team to have to go through in order to try something out. But again, leveraging something that's serverless allows me to use these assets that may be derived during innovation and actually move these into production with very little effort. We're also suggesting that we want to use code to model applications and infrastructure. And this is particularly important because with serverless, we're beginning to release and build much more regularly. We want a lot of the processes that we use to checkpoint quality and to integrate work together to be automated uh, using other technologies, things like Jenkins and other things that AWS provides like code build and code pipeline. And that's similar to what we talk about things like CI and CD. One of the challenges we see customers initially struggling with when they begin working with a serverless architecture is not necessarily having the proper automated DevOps or CI CD pipelines um, initially. And those are good practices that we should be always fostering in our environment. It helps, helps with velocity, it helps us actually manage um, how we're delivering applications without having to think about the onerous tasks required around things like quality and just general integration. We're also talking about having to gain insights into application behavior with monitoring. And one of the best practices, again, we see with any application that's leveraging cloud-native services is that we have monitoring included in the application at build time and at development time. And what this allows us to do is quickly troubleshoot where applications may be having challenges, but also to very fine-grained look at performance profiles for specific parts of our application. 
Um, and again, there are products like uh, AWS X-Ray and a number of partner solutions that can be used to help with monitoring these applications. But it's important that monitoring is built in initially when the applications are being uh, built at the individual microservice level. And so to drill down on the microservices piece, microservices are absolutely a best practice. Um, it's not, again, it's, easy, it's easier said than done in a lot of cases. Uh, organizations may initially struggle with taking a legacy application and then decomposing it into microservices, but working with both what we call a two-pizza team, so individuals on these teams have full control and autonomy from the inception of the process, the building of the actual code, and the deployment of the code, um, all the way to the overall application architecture. Uh, we want to make sure that the individual microservices owned by that individual team, that we have APIs defined around these microservices that serve effectively as a contract. Think of it the example that I may have a street address for my house, allowing me to receive mail, but I still receive mail when I'm remodeling my kitchen. And that's really what the API is providing for us when we're looking at the microservices architecture, is it allows me to focus where I'm making my changes rather than a larger monolith, I have to take down the system, the entire system sometimes, to be able to make specific changes. So microservices in general provide enormous amounts of uh, innovation and just overall speed and time to market because we're able to go and make changes at much more fine-grained levels within the application itself. Also, of course, making sure that we've got committed and measured SLAs. This is where monitoring becomes very important when we begin to look at things like a microservices architecture. Now, I've said the term a number of times. What are we specifically referring to when we talk about serverless? So serverless in the context of AWS, and there are many different services, um, aside from just Lambda, API Gateway, Step Functions, and Messaging, things like S3, Kinesis, um, Athena, and so forth. The real thought process and the model that we tend to use is that something is serverless if I don't have to care about provisioning or managing the servers ultimately underlying the system itself. I don't have to worry about patching the actual operating systems. I don't have to worry about scaling up or scaling down of my resources. I can focus on the business logic more directly as I'm building out my application. And so more specifically, things like not having infrastructure to manage, automatically scaling, paying for value, highly available and highly uh, durable, these are things that you get out of the box by leveraging serverless capabilities. Now, as I mentioned, serverless is more than just compute. And so while it's very common that in the microservices application, you are going to have Lambda at the heart uh, driving the overall business logic, it's very common as well to actually end up having an application that looks like it's being built by a number of different Lego blocks um, coming together maybe to build like a Lego house. In this example, maybe Lambda connecting with API Gateway, leveraging step functions to actually facilitate the workflow, leveraging messaging to help with throttling and help with durability. Uh, but other services like S3, like Kinesis, like DynamoDB, like Amazon Aurora, um, are very integral in building your overall application. So compute is very important, but there's other components, of course, that come into play. The benefit of leveraging these wholly managed services, what we're calling serverless services, is that I don't have to care about the infrastructure underlying these individual pieces. They scale elastically as I begin to have more load, and they also go away when I don't need them. And the big thing is, of course, I don't pay for them when I'm not using them. And so that's a very unique uh, value proposition when we start looking at building an application with serverless. What we're also suggesting here is that in addition to not having to care about the infrastructure, you're really taking a lot of the stuff that otherwise your team would be worrying about. Uh, remember back from when I was a developer many years ago, spending a lot of time initially trying to get access to just the hardware, and then of course getting the authority from various uh, parts of my organization to begin doing the build. Well really, what I'm ultimately trying to do is build code, leveraging compute to drive business logic. All the other stuff that I would have had to do from an infrastructure and from a security and systems perspective was required to get to that one level. But in a serverless environment, I can begin with code. All the other pieces are actually managed by AWS in this case here. 
So messaging and orchestration, storage databases, compute, and the physical infrastructure are really things that AWS takes on. And you as the end user really focus on your business logic and then your API being that hardened set of rules around the individual microservices. Now, if we look at the shared uh, operational responsibility model, it changes very dramatically when we start looking at even an EC2 hosted application versus Lambda. And this is, again, one of the benefits that we want to reiterate customers are seeing by leveraging serverless. And so in a traditional environment with EC2, infrastructure as a service, the actual physical hardware is being managed by AWS. We move up the abstraction level and maybe look at things like ECS, EKS for container management. Again, there's some work that's being managed by AWS as we begin to work up this stack. Each individual uh, abstraction as I move further up to things like maybe Fargate and eventually Lambda allows AWS to shoulder much more of that undifferentiated heavy lifting, the systems management burden, and allows me as the end user to focus on the business logic. And that again was really why I was building the application to begin with, to drive business logic, to help with my business, to help my customers uh, the best ways possible. So how are we seeing customers begin to adopt these types of serverless patterns? Um, again, it tends to leverage much more greenfield applications being a better use of serverless capability, uh, but we definitely see customers leveraging um, existing applications and refactoring existing applications to move in a more serverless fashion. And I'll talk about some of those in just a moment here. But more practically speaking, what we're finding is that AWS customers are actually modernizing their applications one at a time. And so that whether that's one team focusing on one application or organizationally, the company tends to focus on one application modernization at a time. Greenfield applications are a very different conversation. We do find serverless lends itself very well to greenfield application development. But when we're talking about modernization, oftentimes existing and legacy applications can be decomposed to help with organizational agility and just overall innovation. And so one of the best ways to do that is to start looking at the parts of our monolithic application where we may be able to refactor that capability. I'll talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. But typically, organizations, when you're looking at cloud and cloud-native types of applications, you look at the four R's, things like re-hosting. Do I re-platform? Do I refactor? Do I reinvent? And so you're going to get probably your best economic benefit from total reinvention, moving something that might have been legacy into a much more cloud-native serverless architecture, but there's always risk associated with that. And so from a pragmatic perspective, we really recommend that organizations look at really refactoring or changing parts of the legacy application that are stymieing or holding back overall innovation rather than looking at a full migration. Now, of course, your mileage may vary and there may be some legacy applications where it's deemed that the entire application needs to be rebuilt. And indeed, we do see many, many customers moving down this direction to do this with serverless. But again, you wanna try and limit the amount of scope change as possible, especially when you're beginning to adopt serverless because your organization is beginning to uh, understand and identify its own best practices um, and ways to automate processes and follow existing patterns um, for your organization. So organic adoption is probably the most common thing that we see with customers today. Uh, Lambda is freely available in most accounts. There's a million invocations per month per account free, which means Lambda is very pervasive. It also connects to a number of different AWS services natively. And so a lot of organizations are very familiar with Lambda. They typically use Lambda to connect between other AWS services, what we call IT automation, and then over time begin to move into things like data transformation. Lambda again works very well with things like SQS or Kinesis to actually real-time transform data. Uh, and what we find is this is when organizations really hit the tipping point through an organi organic adoption. Inorganic adoption, again, there's already existing knowledge of Lambda and how we can leverage it inside our organization. We then maybe move and migrate and start using things like uh, Kinesis for data transformation. 
a real bill starts to happen, we maybe breach the free tier, and organizations begin to look at the economics behind Lambda. And we typically find very positive conversations behind that. Why are we as an organization, for example, focusing on the underlying infrastructure when that really isn't something that I, I hold as valuable for my business? If I had a billboard today and I was proclaiming the values of what I'm bringing to market, very few companies would use their servers and their server infrastructure as really front and center on that billboard. What we really want to be using is the actual business logic as, as the primary reason for us pushing the business out, the customer stuff that we're doing in our application, not the underlying architecture. And so as organizations begin to look at how we're able to leverage Lambda and things like serverless in a much more uh, impactful, cost-effective, faster time-to-market way, we find organizations begin to look at broader scopes, uh, horizontally scaling this stuff inside their organization, and indeed sometimes start with a pilot, which is what we'll talk about here in just a moment. So incremental refactoring is another common example we see for organizations trying to adopt serverless in an existing legacy application. So if I've got things like an, a mainframe environment or I've got a more legacy large database monolithic type of application, and a lot of customers still do, uh, those may actually be holding up other areas of innovation for my organization. And so leveraging the Strangler pattern, as was coined by some of the Agile folks, um, what, what happens ultimately is I look at the portions of my application where I am finding the most uh, impediments for being able to innovate other new capabilities, and I begin to modernize those individual pieces first and foremost. So rather than boiling the ocean and maybe modernizing the entire application, I use the business and the challenges that I'm facing as I try to innovate for my business to determine where I'm going to modernize an application itself. This is, again, going to leverage things like an API-based strategy. I may use message brokers like Amazon MQ or other other types of messaging solutions to help with that process. So if we assume at some point I want to actually select a pilot and serverless makes sense to me as an organization, I'm looking for agility, I'm looking for a better time to market, when I go through the process selecting the pilot, this is very important we find for organizations. And specifically when we look at the goals of the pilot. And so what we're suggesting here is that whatever the next step is after you, you run your pilot for serverless, you want to select the pilot to best enable those types of follow-on activities. And so in specific, are we actually uh, demonstrating our organizational capability? Is that one of the important things that we're looking to do? Are there specific timelines or level of effort that we're actually looking to demonstrate with the pilot itself? Um, we do want to consider the scope of the rollout post the pilot. Um, and really, are we having to look at things like broadly enabling our organization or our team because of some of the lessons that we would have learned throughout that pilot? Objective metrics, of course, are very important, especially if you have uh, an uphill battle to make the political case in your organization to move to something more serverless, but it's important to consider the qualitative traits as well, like political considerations. Uh, people and processes are, of course, extremely important to consider, um, especially if the pilot is likely gonna result in changes to how teams do their work in the future. You just wanna make sure you're aware of that as you're beginning to select the pilot and as you work through the actual uh, execution of that. Also, if TCO is a goal, and a lot of organizations do look at total cost as a goal, consider that the pilot has to be easily related to a similar project that your company may be using a more traditional architecture within. And this helps alleviate any challenges around the results of your pilot being disqualified because in some cases maybe it isn't seen as representative of what the larger organization is doing. Um, you also want to look at things like infrastructure costs, but don't forget to look at the time to market and your team member effort. That's probably one of the biggest things that we see organizations missing when they start looking at things like a serverless environment is there's a very intent focus on the overall infrastructure, but we forget the overall opportunity cost with time to market and then the team member effort required to deliver something. 
In a serverless environment, our customers are telling us the amount of effort required by teams to deliver an application faster is significantly less because I don't have to focus on the underlying architecture. So some specific uh, selection criteria that we would recommend around selecting this first serverless pilot for your organization. Does the pilot represent broader efforts in your organization? Um, which team members are included on the pilot? And so one of the recommendations, and it's a best practice, is that we need to be looking at selecting team members who one might say are a little more uh, agreeable with their dis uh, disposition. They're technically savvy, but they have an understanding of both development and operations at the high level. Again, one of the things you're doing in serverless is the actual development of the application will now encompass operational deployment as well. So you're making your developers deploy things into production effectively at the same time. And so having folks on the pilot who understand operations and security in addition to development is very important. Um, executive buy-in, very critical for organizations. Um, it, a lot of cases when serverless pilots are successful, process change, organizational change may follow, um, and having executive buy-in is very important in order to make those follow-on actions fruitful. Um, it should be a significant in-scope project, but not something mission critical. Um, you're gonna be learning an awful lot from this pilot, so you wanna avoid impacting a, a very significant production workload, but you do want something that's important enough that the team members will give it the dedicated support and the uh, interest that it may be uh, required in order to make it function properly. Uh, you also wanna ensure that the project is enough um, complexity that it won't be dismissed. Um, I've seen that happen in a couple of uh, situations as well where a customer may have chosen a pilot that was a little too easy and the TCO was very, very interesting and very, very uh, positive except that it was deemed that the project really was too simple and not representative of something that other teams might also be facing with today and so it was hard to be able to use that as uh, a driver for future actions. Uh, and of course, are there meaningful metrics that can be captured? Um, serverless projects tend to be a whole lot faster with time to market. Um, they tend to take advantage of things like your opportunity cost far more effectively than even a traditional or an EC2 hosted architecture. So oftentimes being able to talk about things like budget, effort, time to delivery, um, transaction volume, size and scale are very important when having the larger organizational conversations. Um, and again, do the desired metrics compare well with another set of similar metrics that you've seen in past projects? So to talk about measuring success and ultimately scaling, we'll look at a few different uh, key indicators here. So we're saying when we're looking at measuring success, objective metrics are very helpful um, and some organizations may be mandatory in order to make the case for any future activities. But again, make sure that you're capturing qualitative feedback. Um, these types of pilots have a tendency to change how organizations work, uh, meaning that team members may be doing things very differently. We want to make sure we understand what the required skill sets and sometimes what the delta between the skill sets are. Um, there's lots of great educational opportunities and skill growing opportunities for different people on your teams, but we want to make sure that we're taking those into account when we're looking at the overall metrics. Um, again, people and process are obviously the most challenging and most important in an organization, and we got to make sure that those are very deliberately navigated as we work through the pilot. Um, can we make the case that the processes and effort expended for the pilot can actually scale in the organization? Um, again, that's a bit of a challenge for some uh, companies initially as you go through these processes, and we said this a little bit earlier, when you're selecting your pilot, it needs to be representative of something that your organization will see elsewhere, so that any corollaries can be drawn to what the team is doing today, rather than spending a lot of time refuting the metrics and oftentimes not being able to capitalize on the work that was done during the pilot. We want to be careful not to focus too heavily on the infrastructure cost and saving as the primary driver for success. Typically, 
things like a serverless architecture end up being more cost effective than leveraging something like EC2. Um, and if you think about that, that makes a little bit of sense initially because we're talking about pay for as you're using a service and then not paying as you're not using the service. There are a lot of EC2 instances where we're may maybe standing up application servers or other parts of my architecture to deal with load that end up being latent. And I pay for that latency, I pay for the management of these resources, I don't in a serverless environment. But in some cases, because you can do parallel executions of things like Lambda, because there are a lot faster compute processes that Lambda are able to uh, drive effectively versus anything like EC2, cost may not always be the initial savings when you look at the infrastructure itself, but it does typically and almost always come in when you look at time to market and then total team effort. Um, I'll talk about it in a moment, but there's a really good white paper that Deloitte co-authored with AWS that really talks about an example where something was built leveraging EC2 versus then being built in a serverless environment. And while overall infrastructure costs were about the same, time to market was dramatically faster in a serverless environment, and the overall effort on the team was significantly less. So again, it's easy to upfront start to assume that serverless is going to be cheaper than traditional infrastructure, but that's not always the case. You do however get that savings back with other parts of the system itself. And we'll link to that uh, white paper here in just a moment. Um, we wanna document our lessons learned. And that's one of the other important things. If we assume the pilot's going to be successful, each organization, and I'll step back even further, we're doing a pilot oftentimes because we want to consume serverless in a term or in a methodology that our organization can best understand. And so if I'm thinking a certain way today, when I go through the pilot process, I'm able to then take that nomenclature and make it make sense for my organization and for my team members. In order to make sure this then scales moving forward and we're taking some of these lessons learned, things like maybe quality and security constraints and how we actually navigate those when we go through our project, we wanna make sure that we're documenting this stuff. Um, and be honest, but be very factual as well. Um, sometimes existing processes do impede more agile or desired practices, but oftentimes that's just the requirement. Sometimes you can't get away from certain things. Highly regulated industries still have a significant amount of additional process because they are in fact regulated and need to demonstrate compliance. But there's still ways to gain quite a bit of agility, even a regulated environment leveraging serverless. So when I've talked about TCO, total cost of ownership, there are some common dimensions that we've seen organizations looking at, and I've sort of alluded to some of these before, and there's a link at the bottom here as well uh, to the white paper that Deloitte co-authored with AWS that sort of talks about the difference between an EC2-hosted uh, project versus something that's hosted in fully serverless environment. Infrastructure cost is pretty important. We do want to look at infrastructure costs, the things that we're using to actually uh, host the application itself, any of the charges for the cloud hosting, whether it's EC2, whether it's other mechanisms that we're using to host things today. And we do see organizations coming from on-premise into serverless as well. So making sure that we have an accurate understanding of our infrastructure costs if we're hosting them outside of the cloud today, very important. The development cost, um, again, the upfront charge of actually building the application. Um, we typically find that to be the probably the largest uh, change when organizations move into serverless because I'm actually able to then focus my development effort on building the application itself. Not the elasticity of it, not the scaling of it, not some of the other high availability things that we have to architect an application for. I can just start with my business, start with the code, build something, and if it works, it is going to scale because you're leveraging managed services that do scale behind it. But again, when you're not using it, you don't have to pay for it, so that's the benefit. And of course, maintenance cost. Um, there's tons of metrics going back over the years that talk about how you account for the overall maintenance of an application all the way from if it's 1x to build it, it may be 10x to actually maintain it over time. And so the, the joke, at least when I've worked in some larger enterprises in my past was, well, maintenance is a different team. I don't have to worry about that budget. I'm the team that's building it. 
well, organizationally speaking, um, overall, uh, trying to work more towards an application that's more maintainable over time is just better. It's easier to develop in a lot of cases because we're forcing that overall maintenance and operations burden back on the development team to begin with. Uh, but again, for maintenance, we want to be looking at things like your day-to-day -day operations, any of the actual cost of running or maintaining an application. So things like licensing costs, things like hardware costs, things like data egress ingress if I'm leveraging cloud managed services. So if we assume the pilot was successful and we were able to do something, if we assume that we've captured a lot of our lessons learned, where do we go from here in an organization? And so what our, our customers have told us that in order to scale horizontally, the Cloud Center of Excellence has been very, very important for that. And so a lot of organizations, if you've come to the cloud for the first time and you've migrated maybe from on-premise, you're going to have a Cloud Center of Excellence that probably helped with man managing process. It probably helped with grabbing uh, best practices from your organization and helping to socialize across the different teams. That's really the same thing that they're going to be doing in a serverless environment. Um, we sometimes coin the term that uh, serverless and these managed services are cloud 2.0. Really the idea being that we're now migrating from something that was the first incarnation of getting into a virtualized environment to now looking at refactoring my application to be a lot more uh, fully managed leveraging serverless componentry. But again, your Cloud Center of Excellence is going to be that organization um, that drives a lot of the standards, is looking for best practices. And as you begin to go beyond actual pilots and begin to roll out more and more projects, you are going to learn a lot more. And it's often not in the mandate of the team delivering the work to start looking for best practices. Again, that's where the Cloud Center of Excellence provides an awful lot of value. And so if you don't, aren't familiar with the Cloud Center of Excellence or you don't have one today, it's just as simple as building out a team that has folks who understand the different areas of your business, all the way from you know, your architecture, your governance, to your program management, training and onboarding, financial management, uh, org change management, all these different types of groups, of course, the development and technical realm as well. But they're looking at trying to help the organization consume these new practices and processes. Um, and again, what we're finding from customers is as you move into a fully serverless architecture over time, your practices and your processes definitely will change. For the better, one might argue. So before I finish up here, I did want to call out that we've got a number of different uh, training services and certifications, um, all the way from free training on the basics of serverless and how to get a little bit deeper in some of the technologies like Lambda or API Gateway, but there's also individual certifications and digital classroom trainings that actually cover some of this idea of modern application development. I've talked a lot about serverless, I've talked a lot about Lambda, but what we also find from our customers is that a modern application may be beyond simply just a Lambda or a compute-based architecture. You may be leveraging containers. You may still be leveraging parts of EC2 inside your overall system. And having a, a modern approach to doing this, having a way that you and your team can actually learn more effectively, um, very, very impactful at making sure that organizations are able to digest the change coming with a serverless architecture. So there's a link at the bottom. Um, again, highly recommend a lot of the free training that you have access to here today. So with that, I wanted to thank you. Uh, again, my name is Matt Braleyberger. You can see my email address at the bottom, mattbb at amazon.com. Please feel free to reach out with any questions. And thank you so much for your time.